What is up, City Light? How are you guys? All right. You're kind of here. Good to see you. You're looking good, that's for sure. And uh, as my wife just said, my name's Doug, and uh, I, I love getting to serve our church. It is such a joy, and here's why. Because our church loves to serve. Just this last Sunday, we celebrated and appreciated the many volunteers that we have in our City Light Kids ministry. I mean, these are the people who are changing diapers and telling Bible stories and making cute little crafts, and sometimes they're doing all of that at the same time. They're incredible human beings. We have over 50 people who volunteer in City Light Kids, and on any given Sunday, 22 of them are back there investing in the lives of real children, pointing them to Jesus Christ. And so as I was sitting there eating some delicious smoked chicken, for the glory of Jesus. I was just overcome with this heart of gratitude going, God, what you're doing here is special. And who you've brought to our church and how you're raising people up is such a gift from you. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you, City Light. Man, when you have over 50 people lined up to volunteer in City Light Kids, you know God is on the move. God is doing something, right, church? That's right. Well, I want to get started this morning and there's this life transition that many of us go through. It's a, a shift, a decisive change when we begin to realize that life isn't about us, but life is actually about someone or something bigger than us. We may go through this shift in our careers when that job that you got just to make some money changes into a sense of calling in your life, a way for you to serve people or make the world better. It can happen in a kid when he begins to not just do a chore so he can get an allowance, but he does chores for the family because he realizes this blesses my family. It can happen with a college student when she doesn't just show up to class and try to get by and get it behind her, but instead she wants to learn as much as she can so she can invest as much as she can into the lives of the people around her. It can happen for all of us when it comes to money, whenever we begin to see, oh, money's not just something to get, but money is a tool. It's a way that I can use it to give to others. It's this transition from self-centered to serving-centered. And for me, I remember this shift happening in a big way my sophomore year of college. My mom had had a surgery that year, and it didn't go well. She had complications, pain. She was kind of sidelined from life for a few months. And so that Christmas break, I'm going back home, and for whatever reason, I can't say it was intentional, but I was like, you know what? When I go back home, I'm just going to stay at home and serve my mom. Normally, I'd like call up all my old buddies, and we'd watch movies till the wee hours of the morning, but that break, I was like, no, I'm going to stay right here at home, and I'm going to serve. If my mom needed breakfast, I'd make her toaster strudels. If my mom wanted lunch, I'd make her Pop-Tarts. If my mom wanted dinner, I'd make her some donuts, you know, like not actual donuts. I'd go get a Burger King or order pizza in or something like that. That was as good as I could get, but it really was. I was serving my mom. Like if she needed a towel... I'd get her a towel. If she wanted some iced tea, I'd get her some iced tea. If she needed the phone, it was back in those days when the phone had a cord, and I'd bring it over to mom. And I'm actually kind of ashamed to say, but that season of life, I was about 19, 20 years old. It was kind of the first time I slowed down and just blessed my family. 
served my mom. And it was like the first time I could remember, I wasn't just looking out for me, but I began to look out for her. I didn't want to just get, 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 but I also wanted to give, give, give. And I think we all go through this change, including in our relationship with God. You know, we start our relationship with God often with this idea of, What's in it for me? What can God do for me? Hey, God, what can you do for me? But at some point in time, we begin to mature and change, and following Jesus becomes not just what he can do for me, but we want to do something for him. We want to serve him. We want to bless him. So our prayers start sounding a little less like, hey, God, can you do this, 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 and this for me? And they begin to sound a little more like, hey, God, what can I do for you? I want to do this for you. Well, this morning, we're continuing our sermon series looking at the life of King David in the Old Testament. And this morning, we're going to look at two stories. They're short, but they're connected. And these are stories where David is saying, God, what can I do for you? David's saying, man, God, I want to do something for you. And I think these stories are actually going to mess with us a little bit, church, okay? I think these stories are important for us, and they matter for us to look at them precisely because of the surprise that we're going to see in the stories. When David wants to do something for God, both times, God's response is surprising. So if you got your Bibles, let's just jump into these stories. The first story is in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So one chapter before what my wife just read. So go 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, by this time in his life, David has endured some really rough years. Like he's been living on the run, hiding out in caves, avoiding assassination attempts, enduring civil war. It's been tough, but now David is king. He's like really, fully, specifically, completely king. He's got a throne, this awesome palace, the whole nine yards. And as king, David wants to make God front and center in his kingdom. David wants to make sure that God is involved in everything he does, every decision, every place. So David's going, okay, I want to do something for God. And then we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2. And it says this, let me see. And David arose and went with All the people who were with him, which we learn in verse 1 is actually about 30,000 people. He went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So David remembers this thing called the ark of God. The ark of God is like where God himself lived. It's where his presence lived. There was a pretty small box, about two feet by three feet. It had these poles on it that they would use to carry it. And on top, it had these uh, angels or what it says in here, cherubim. The Ark of God kind of looked like what you saw in the Indiana Jones movies. Like they, they did a pretty good job with that. And this little box was a really big deal to David and all the people of Israel because in this little box, it was like the closest they could come to God being with them to God right here on the earth, God's presence dwelling among us. 
But David realizes, man, that ark of God, it was like stuck away back in a small town far from him and his kingdom. David's like living large in New York City. The ark of God is far away. And he's like, wait, wait, that's not where the ark of God um, belongs. I want to bring it right into the middle of my reign and my rule. So they go to get this ark of God. David wanted to do something for God. His heart is golden. His desires are pure. So they go to get this ark. We can continue in verse 3, and it says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Now pause there, because this is actually significant. Now, I don't know what the new cart was. Maybe it was like the latest technology for their day. And David's going, oh, this is sweet. We got a cart, put the ark on there. This will make things smoother, easier, faster. Let's just use this ark. So they get the ark on there and they start wheeling it towards Jerusalem where David is reigning. The the cart's rolling along, the ark is moving along. And along the way, David's partying. David is so excited. He is dancing, celebrating. He's got a band playing the latest Chris Tomlin song. Like things are going well for him. He's like, yes. But something was going wrong. Something was actually going wrong. And here's what it is. God, earlier in the Bible, he had told his people specifically to never carry the ark of God on a cart. He had told them, don't do that. Now, why? God wanted his presence to be felt. He he didn't want to be fast and easy. He wanted to be felt and experienced. But David and his crew, they got this cool new cart. So they're like, let's do this. Let's roll this thing. So they're just rolling the cart on their way to Jerusalem. And if you remember the story and what happens, while they're rolling the cart, the ark of God begins to slip. You guys remember this part? It's right here in chapter 6. And when the ark of God begins to slip, some dude named Uzzah, which I kind of think is a cool name. Anybody want to name their son that? But Uzzah reaches out and he stops the ark from slipping. Do you remember what happens to him? He dies. Like right there on the spot, Uzzah drops dead. He's trying to keep the ark from falling, right? Like he's trying to do something for God and he drops dead. Now, Question marks are beginning to pop up in my head. Like, what's going on here, God? And question marks were popping up in David's head as well. So David just steps back from the whole thing, and he's like, I don't know what's happening here. Take that ark. Just put it in that dude's house. I'm going to walk away before I get killed myself, okay? That's what David does. Time kind of goes by, and a few months later, David says, you know, I still want it here in Jerusalem. I think we can get it here. So he sets about to do it again. This time, he gets the right guys, and they carry the ark of God. No cart anymore. And so as they carry it, they do a thing. The story says, every six steps, every six steps, they pause, and they offer a sacrifice to God, right? They're carrying the ark. Six steps happen, another sacrifice. Six steps, another sacrifice, now, David's still dancing. David's still celebrating, right? Unstoppable God, let your, like he's singing. Everything's going great. But every single, well, you guys all laugh when I try to sing. Man, that just hurts my heart. But I love you anyways, okay? No, I'm a bad singer. Every six steps, they're pausing to sacrifice along the way. David is trying to honor God even as he's bringing this cart into Jerusalem. So slowly, joyfully, and carefully, they bring the ark into Jerusalem and restore it back to where it belongs. But along the way, 
it cost the life of a careless man. And along the way, it cost the life of dozens of um, rams and sheep and bulls. Now, to the people of God in that time, this would have just stood out to them because they're going, wow, this presence of God is precious. Our God is serious and he is joyful. It would remind them just how powerful this presence of God is. And my question is, what does this story mean for us today, City Light? When we want to do something for God, right? We have a heart like David's. God, I want to pitch in and help. I want to serve you. What does this story tell us? Here's what I think it says. Serving God requires sacrifice. Serving God requires sacrifice. And when you think about it, like think about that sentence, serving God requires sacrifice. It almost sounds ludicrous, right? Like, why do I have to sacrifice so that I can serve God? Why must there be a sacrifice? Shouldn't God just be happy that I want to help him out? Shouldn't he just be glad that I want to serve him? We live in a culture where the individual is king. The customer's always right. And even if we don't like their food that much, we sure agree with Burger King that we should have it our own way, right? But God ain't that way. God is pure and perfect and spotless. He is perfect without blemish and without error. God has never once slipped up, messed up, fouled up, or popped off. God has never once blown it or lost it. God has never sinned. And that right there is called God's holiness. And in his holiness, God cannot be around or with anyone or anything that is unholy. So what God did was he wrote all these rules, these laws, these regulations, and gave them to his people and said, man, if you'll follow all these rules, laws, and regulations, then you can be holy like me. You can be with me and I can be with you. There's about 600 of these laws in the Old Testament, another thousand or so in the New Testament. So in the Bible, you're talking 1,600 rules, laws, regulations, and if or when we break one single of those rules, God doesn't like sweep it under the rug and say, ah, no big deal, I didn't really see that. No, when we break one of those rules, kind of like our boy Uzzah did, or like our main character David did, when we break one of those rules, it requires sacrifice. It requires sacrifice. And the Bible says that even for us, on our best of days, we are still imperfect. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Some of you are going to have this memorized. Romans 3, verse 23 says it this way. For all have sinned. Right? Not just like the really bad guys like Hitler, but the Bible's saying, all of us have sinned. You, me, all of us. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So even on our best days, when we're transitioning from getting to giving, when we're going through that life change to wanting to serve someone and not just serve myself, even on our best days, we're still imperfect. Even when we want to do something for God, we can't because we mess it up. Even when we want to serve him, we still slip up. Bummer. That is a bummer. Serving God requires sacrifice. Celebrating God's presence with singing and dancing, that requires sacrifice. Wanting to do something for God requires sacrifice. And so this shift that's going on in our hearts 
from selfless, selfishness to serving, like it seems so good, yet impossible. And so we're in this place of tension, of wanting to do something for God, but realizing I can't because I'm going to mess it up. It's this problem. It's a real dilemma that's going on in our hearts. Now, what I want us to do is just pause right there, okay? That dilemma that you're in, the the feelings, the thoughts, the question marks going on in your head, just pause those right there, and we're going to step into the next story, okay? The next story is in chapter 7. So if you got your Bibles, look ahead to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we see that David finally has some rest, from all of his bloodshed and battles. And he's got this ark of God that's now in the center of his kingdom. And that seems great. But then David looks up and he realizes he's in this sweet palace. He's got an awesome pad, living large. It's made of cedar. Everything's going great for David's house. But then he looks at the ark of God and it's in a tent that's like hundreds of years old, made out of animal skins. It's out in the weather day in and day out. So he's going, man, I got a sweet pad, but God, he's sort of kind of homeless living in a tent. So again, David wants to do something for God. He wants to do something for God. And this time he wants to build God a house right? Like a a real house, a nice house, like Chip and Joanna Gaines style, okay? None of this like tents and animal skins and out in the weather, all that. Oh no, this is going to be sweet. It's going to have shiplap. Um, It's probably going to be gray and white with bookshelves and other things like that, you know, like cedar wood. It's going to have hardwood floors and all these other cool things that I'm sure my wife can dream up to make our house a home and make it feel special. But David, you remember, he learned his lesson back in chapter 6. Instead of just charging ahead and getting the house going, David's like, well, I should go check with the prophet. And so the local prophet who's supposed to speak for God, his name was Nathan. So David shares all this with Nathan. Nathan's like, yeah, sounds awesome. Go for it. Do whatever is in your heart, David. But then that night as Nathan, the prophet, is spending time with God, God shows up and he's like, um, Nathan, I'd kind of like to speak into this if you don't mind, you know? And so God speaks to Nathan who relays it to David. I'll keep the story short. Here's what God said to David. Thanks, but no thanks. Like, I appreciate your heart, David. I love that you want to do something for me, but it's just not yours to do. He's like, I get what you want, but thanks, no thanks. You know, like hashtag sorry, not sorry. That's, that's kind of what God is saying. And I'm going, God, like... He wants to do something for you. Like, again, and you, God, it looks like you're kind of getting in the way again. Like, can't you just let David do something for you? Can't you just let him build you a house, a home, a permanent residence? Like, what is going on here? Someone call customer service in heaven and just tell God to chill out a little bit and let some people do something for him. This tension is growing. Now, with that tension in mind, drop into the story. 2 Samuel chapter 7, look at the end of verse 11. The last sentence in verse 11. It says this, um, Moreover, the Lord declares to you. Now, who is you? You is David, okay? The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. Okay, this is fascinating, guys. I hope you can kind of get this. It's utterly shocking. God just turned the tables and flipped the script on David. Do you see what happened? 
David wanted to build a house for God, but then God shows up and says, no, David, I'm building you a house. David wanted to do something for God, but then God shows up and he says, no, I'm doing something for you. And then God continues like, David, get this. Even after you pass away, even after you die, David, one of your descendants is going to come to the throne and I will love him like a son. I will take care of him as a son and he can build me a house. He'll do it. And then David, get this. Even after you're gone and your descendants are gone, you will always have one of your very own body, one of your very own blood reigning and ruling on my throne. He's saying, David, I will give you a forever king from your lineage who will reign and rule forever. God sums it up in verse 16 this way. He says, in your house, this house that God would build for David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, we live in a culture of video on demand, right? You don't even got to go to Blockbuster anymore. I don't even know if Redbox works anymore. Like, you want it, boom, you just click, and there it is. We live in a culture of microwavable dinners and transatlantic flights in four hours, right? Things are fast-paced, and we can get stuff done. But even we in our culture know that forever is a long, long, long time. David wanted to do something for God that might have, on its best of days, lasted for like three, maybe four generations, right? But then God flips the script, turns the table and says, David, I'm going to do something for you that will last for all generations, for all ages, forever. Here's what God is doing. God is making a covenant with David. He's making a covenant with David. In big theology terms, if you were in a Bible class, they would say 2 Samuel 7 is called the Davidic covenant, okay? Now, covenant is a big vocabulary word that I probably had to learn for the SAT or something like that, but here's what covenant is in simple terms. It is God's no matter what promise. It is God's no matter what commitment, God is saying to David that this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I will treat you no matter what you do and no matter what your descendants do. Now, we're used to contracts. And contracts are these two-way agreements that are loaded with conditions, right? Like, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do that for you. If you'll start this, then I'll finish that. If you'll do this, then I will pay you. Those are agreements that have conditions. But God's covenant is his no matter what commitment, his no matter what promise. So even if David fails, even if one of David's descendants eventually fails, God's saying, I'm still going to do this. You can take it to the bank that I will execute this commitment no matter what. That's God's covenant. So what does this mean for us, City Light? In the midst of all this covenant that is going on, we already know that when we want to serve God, we really can't, and it requires sacrifice. Now, what light can this second story shed for us? I think this second story helps us with this. When we want to do something for God, God is already doing it for us. When we want to do something for God, God is already doing it for us. Do you see that in God's covenant promise to David? David is wanting to build a house for God. But God comes back and says, actually, David, I'm going to build a house for you. 
And not just like a normal house, this is an eternal house, an eternal throne, a forever house. When we want to do something for God, he's already doing it for us. And when you piece the two stories together, our dilemma begins to get solved. Right? Like we want to do something for God and we know we slip up, we sin, we mess up. And so we can't do it. It requires a sacrifice. But then on the other hand, we also know that when we want to do something for God, he has to do it for us. We can't quite get it done. And so just like every Sunday, we come back to who, City Light? Jesus. Exactly. You can say it a little louder. It's okay. We come back to Jesus every single Sunday. Every story weaves back to him. Our hearts find our hope in him. We want to do something for God, but we mess it up. So we need a sacrifice. We want to do something for God, but we realize we can't. God's already doing it for us. Here's the cool thing, guys. Jesus is both of those for us. Jesus is our sacrifice who paid the price for all of our sins and our slip-ups. And Jesus is our substitute who fulfills, executes, and accomplishes everything that God requires of us. In the first story, City Light, we are David and Uzzah, who are trying to do something for God, but we're sinning along the way. We're making our mistakes. We're slipping up. Yet here's the amazing thing. We are Uzzah, yet Jesus is the one who died like Uzzah, right? We deserve the death, but Jesus is the one who got the death in our place, in our stead. Jesus pays the price for our sins and our slip-ups. And then in the second story, again, we're kind of like David. David. We're dreaming these big dreams for God, thinking of these big ideas. God, I'm going to do something for you. God, I'm going to feed the homeless. God, I'm going to start this ministry. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to serve. God, I'm going to wake up and read my Bible for 30 minutes every morning before the sun comes up, even though my kids didn't even sleep for 30 minutes last night. God, I'm going to stop doing this, or God, I'm going to start doing that. God, you just watch because I'm going to do something for you. And we find out that Jesus has already done it all for us. God flips the script and turns the table on us. All the promises that we've ever made to God yet didn't follow through on, Jesus has done for us. All of those intentions of our hearts that we thought were going to turn out but never turned out, Jesus has done them for us. Everything that God requires of us, City Light, this is good news, Jesus can do for us. Everything that God requires of us, Jesus has done for us. So City Light, we come to God broken and sinful and slipping and stumbling. And on our best of days, we really aren't that great. And God comes to us pure and spotless and stable and strong. And on our worst of days, he is great for us. God gave his own son, Jesus, to be our sacrifice, paying the price for our sins, and he gave his own son, Jesus, to be our substitute, living the life that we can't quite live, no matter how much we might want to. God's done it all for us. And so you might have this question going through your head. Doug, I hear that, and that's good news, but like, what do I do then? (laughs) What role do I have to play? If Jesus is both my sacrifice and my substitute, then what do I even do? It's a great question, and I think it's one that David answers for us in the story. Look down a few verses more in 2 Samuel 7, verse 18, okay? 
After David has tried to do something for God and he sins and messes it up. After David has tried to do something for God and God's like, no, actually, I'm doing it for you. This is David's response in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Could you just see him? He's going into this old tabernacle that's been around for hundreds of years. He just sits down before the Lord and he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And he goes on, and essentially what David says is, God, who am I that I could get all the benefits and all the blessings of your covenant at no cost to me? David responds with humility. David sees his own smallness as God is giving both a sacrifice and a substitute for him. Now skip down to verse 22. One more way that David responds, he says, Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And so at the same time that David is seeing his smallness, he's also seeing God's greatness. How utterly unique and distinct and powerful God is above all other gods, above all other earthly powers and kingdoms. He's saying, God, you are over all of those things. And so David is lowered while God is exalted. And so he's like, that's exactly where we want to live. That's exactly how we want to live in that place of humility, in that place of God's exaltation. Jesus is both our sacrifice, who pays the price for our sins, and our substitute, who completes all that God requires for us. And so that leaves us in a place to say, I want to get lower so God can get higher. I want to be humble so God can be exalted. Oh, Jesus, let me decrease so that you can increase. So can I invite you this morning? See, like, would you pray with me? And we want to pray similar to how David prayed, just a prayer of gratitude, a prayer of saying, God, we realize we're small and you are great. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, I pray that you would be moving right now and stirring in our hearts to take these stories from thousands of years ago and connect them to our week, our day today. Would you be speaking personally to hearts this morning, letting them know what you have to say to them, what you want them to take home from this message, from this morning? So see, like, can I just encourage you, like, this may sound odd, but can you just think of your smallness? Can you accept that? Can you embrace that and rejoice in your smallness? Compared to God and all he is and all he has done, and say, oh God, who am I that you would think of me? <laughs> that you would do this for me? And then City Light, maybe you want to begin to think on God's greatness, how perfect he is, how, how strong he is, eternal, powerful, reigning and ruling over everything, including you. And in the same time you're seeing your smallness, you're getting to see his greatness. Maybe you just want to begin to give him praise. Tell him how awesome he is in your own heart. Oh, Father God, what a good place to be. When we see our smallness and your greatness, it's called humility. And it satisfies our souls because it's letting us see more of you. Get more of you, taste more of you, love more of you. 
So Father, I pray the work that you did in David, when you gave him mercy, even after his sin and his slips up, the work that you did in David, when you said, I will build a house for you, oh God, would you continue that work for us today through your son, Jesus Christ? May we trust Jesus as our sacrifice. May we trust him as our substitute and keep us in this place of humility all week long. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.